Well, good morning, Church of the City. Spencer here. I'm really excited about our passage this morning, and I want to do something a little bit different for our time together this morning. Uh, If you've been following along in our series in the Gospel of John, hopefully it's not news to you to hear that John's Gospel is rich with theological detail. Well, this morning's passage is especially rich in in physical details as well. It has that theological detail, certainly, but John gives us all kinds of details about the the setting and and the place and what people are saying and their reactions. And so, what I want us to do this morning is imagine our passage as playing out on a stage in front of us, and we're the audience taking in what's happening on the stage. And I'm going to let John do most of the directing Uh, for this morning, and I'll just jump in uh, with little extra pieces of context or to to pose certain questions for us as the audience to think about. And so, here's a couple of invitations. If if you're hearing this and you're more uh, left-brained on the spectrum, you know, I'd invite you not to just check out. Um, Give this a chance. You know, maybe you'll be able to experience this passage, because if you've read the scriptures much, spent much time in scripture, you've probably heard this story multiple times before, but maybe if you give this a chance, you'll experience it in a new way this morning. Uh, so that's one encouragement. Another would be for all of us, uh, do whatever you can to, to minimize distractions this morning. If you're watching by yourself, maybe you put in headphones, uh, maybe you maybe you want to spend most of your time with your eyes closed, just imagining this scene unfolding. I don't know what it is, but whatever you can do to minimize distractions, I'd invite you to do it. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Typically, we would pause at the start of our time together. I'm going to insert a couple of pauses as we go uh, and invite you to reflect. So in this moment, I'm simply going to pray and then we'll get started. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we explore this passage this morning that John wrote with such rich detail, that as we try and immerse ourselves in it, that perhaps we would uh, see it in a new light. And through that process, perhaps we'd learn more deeply uh, who you are and what you've done for us, and in light of that, uh, who we are and how we ought to live our lives. Would you do that this morning, Holy Spirit? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, as Matt kind of alluded to last week, John chapter the the transition from John chapter 12 to 13 sort of signals, if you will, in the language that we're going to be using this morning, kind of the transition from Act 1 to Act 2 in John's Gospel. He goes, John goes from writing about Jesus' public ministry with the crowds to this private ministry to his disciples. And in verses 1 to 3 that we're going to look at this morning, it's it really feels like one scene. Act 2, scene 1. You'll see at the beginning and the end sort of markers that make it feel that way. But within this scene that we're going to explore this morning are three mini-scenes, three little vignettes, if you will. And we could call these, uh, the first one, the gospel through the foot washing. The second, the example of the foot washing. And the third little vignette, mini-scene, we could call the warning in the foot washing. Leslie Newbegin uh, introduces this passage, talks about it this way. He writes, At this point in the gospel, we move out of the streets and into the quiet of a room. 
And so you're already probably getting the sense before our scene even starts that it's going to be more private, more quiet, more intimate. And that'll certainly be the case. And so here's what I want you to imagine. We've just taken in act one of John's gospel and we've had a brief intermission. And now we're back, back in our seats. The lights are down and act two is about to begin. It starts with the voice of the narrator, John speaking. And here's what he says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So John is setting the scene a little bit for us. He says that this is happening before the feast of the Passover. Now there's some debate with scholars about how exactly the chronology that John presents in his gospel matches up with the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But I think that what John is saying here is simply that this is happening just as the feast is about to begin. In other words, just before dinner, he's saying. He also puts in this little introduction that Jesus loved his own to the end. And I think he's, he's meaning this in two ways. He's speaking on the one hand of chronology, that in these Jesus' final hours, we would see him show his love for his disciples and in turn for us until his, his dying breath. But he also means it in a in a in sense of, of depth, that Jesus loved his own, and that includes us if you're a follower of Jesus, to the uttermost, that we'll see in this scene that we're gonna look at uh, right now, a display of Jesus' love, and then a, a exponentially richer and deeper display of that love as Jesus went to the cross. And so he loved them to the end, in other words, to the uttermost. And so, with that introduction from our narrator, the lights come up. Let me read for you verse 2. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And so, as the lights come up, we see on the stage a feast about to begin. And I think Matt talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but in that culture for a feast like this, the guests wouldn't be seated at a table. They'd actually be reclining. They'd be lying down, usually on their uh, their left elbow, using that for support, eating food once they began the meal with their right hand and their feet pointed away from the table. And so we see this, this setting of a feast about to begin. And by John saying, you know, during supper, but when we combine that with his introductory note that just before the feast, he writes, we get the sense that the meal has just been served. And so I imagine that what we see on the stage in front of us is that unique kind of conversation, that uniquely rich conversation that happens just before people dig into a meal. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's it's an excited kind of conversation because you're enjoying talking with the person next to you, but you're also really excited about the food that you see laid out. And so we hear that kind of conversation coming from the stage. But then our, our gaze is drawn to one of the characters at the table. It's Judas, who's sitting looking troubled. And John tells us that that's because the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And it's important to realize that John, by saying this, is not trying to excuse what Judas is about to do. You see, just as we, if you're a disciple of Jesus, our hope is that our hearts are day by day turned towards the heart of Jesus so that the things that Jesus thinks solely become our thoughts, the choices that Jesus would make become the choices that we make. 
so too we recognize tragically that others' hearts can be discipled, can be turned towards other things. And tragically, we, we recognize that Judas's heart is not turned, turned towards Jesus, it's turned towards Satan. We, we saw some of the seeds of that in uh, the story of Mary washing Jesus' feet, anointing his feet, and how Judas had such a hard-hearted heart in that moment. And we see that coming to greater fruition in our passage now. But now our gaze is, is drawn to another figure at the table. It's Jesus himself, and he too is sitting quietly. Now imagine that as we watch on the stage, there's a screen behind uh, the character sitting at the table. And on that screen, we see Jesus' thoughts displayed for us, projected there. And we see Jesus imagining uh, the reality that he came from the Father. We see the glory of heaven, of Father, Spirit, and Son together before time even began. And then Father, Spirit, and Son together joyfully in, in, in creation, you know, throwing the stars into space and raising up mountains. And then we see Jesus' thoughts flash to his return to heaven, his return to his Father, and the triumph of that, you know, the angels worshiping, the trumpets sounding, being embraced by his Father. And then as those thoughts are displayed, we see Jesus stand. And so we're expecting... We're expecting something grand, perhaps a glorious speech, beginning with something like, behold, you know, maybe a miracle to accompany. And so as Jesus rises, we, we focus back on the action. Verse four, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Not at all what we in the audience are anticipating to happen in this moment. As we see Jesus' magnificent thoughts on that screen behind the figures at the table, things take a bit of a turn. Rather than a speech, Jesus puts on the attire of a servant and begins to perform one of the most demeaning of tasks that would be asked asked of servants. So demeaning, in fact, that in that culture, it was often not asked of Jewish servants. It was considered too demeaning for them. It was reserved for Gentile servants. And yet Jesus begins, he gets up from the table and puts on the attire of a servant, picks up the bowl and begins to wash grimy, crusty feet. And what we see happening on the stage in front of us, I imagine it this way anyways, is the conversation, that rich conversation that was happening slowly fading out. But notice it takes a moment for that conversation to fade because when you're reclining at a table the way that these disciples would have been, it's easy to not see or to ignore someone or something happening at your feet. You don't notice it at first. And so the conversation takes a while, but slowly as the disciples see what Jesus is doing, the kind of silence sinks in, that unique kind of silence that only happens when someone is embarrassing themselves. You might know the kind of silence that I'm talking about, or maybe you've witnessed it in person or or seen it in a movie, you know, that, that just sort of stunned, embarrassed kind of silence sits over the room. But then someone breaks that silence. Verse eight, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, Do do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, 
you have no share with me. And so Peter, as usually seems to be true of him, is determined to cut an awkward silence, and he he does it by saying something, saying anything. He's too embarrassed to let Jesus do this. It's just not appropriate. And so, you know, Peter says, you know, you, Lord, wash my feet. And Jesus says, it's okay, Peter. It's okay that you don't understand this. You will. You will understand it as events in the coming hours begin to unfold. But Peter, you know, is just more emphatic. He says, no, never. Jesus, in turn, responds with an emphatic response of his own. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so we sitting in the audience notice that the silence a moment ago was kind of a stunned, embarrassed silence. But now as we look at the faces around the table at the feast, it's a different kind of silence. It's one that's considering the weight of Jesus' words. You see, we might miss it. But when Jesus says, you have no share with me, he's saying something significant. He's talking about long-term relationship, whether that will exist or not. He's even sort of alluding to the idea of inheritance. Think about the prodigal son and what he said to his father. Divide up your inheritance and give me my share. Right? Jesus is saying a similar thing to Peter. You'll have no share with me. And so, Jesus is letting Peter know that unless he allow, unless Peter will allow Jesus to do something for him that he can't do for himself, that they will eventually part from each other. See, initially for us watching the scene unfold, it feels like Peter's being the humble one in this moment, right? He recognizes that Jesus is the one in authority. He's the rabbi and, and Peter's the student. And so this just isn't right. But as we reflect a little bit more and take in the scene as it's unfolding, as we listen to Jesus' words, we recognize that first Jesus is humbling himself on the disciples' behalf and in turn on our behalf to serve them and to serve us. But then we must respond with a humility of our own in order to accept the gift that Jesus is offering Peter, God bless him, recognizes that Jesus is saying something significant in this moment. He just isn't quite getting it, right? And so we, our scene has its first humorous moment. We're able to break the tension a little bit with a laugh when Peter responds, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head, right? He's seeing, man, this washing somehow is important. So if it is, Jesus, wash all of me. He wants to take out a bit of an insurance policy. But Jesus uses Peter's uh, humorous words as an opportunity for another lesson. In verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who's bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, uh, you probably have a footnote there. And that footnote is talking about how scholars disagree what exactly the, the original wording is in these verses. I think what we have here is the original wording. And I think what Jesus is saying is he's giving us a beautiful picture of what it means to believe the gospel in everyday life. You see, you and I, when we are washed by Jesus, when we put our faith in him, accept his free gift of grace, we are completely clean. Our sin is taken away. Our debt is paid. We are clean before God. And yet, you and I know that in the muck and mire of everyday life, we fall short, we slip up, we make mistakes, and so we return for those little cleansings day by day. Think about Jesus' instruction to his disciples about how to pray 
in Matthew chapter 6. He says, as part of that prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so in this beautiful act of service that we're watching happen on the stage, Jesus is showing his disciples and us a picture, a beautiful picture of the gospel. Frederick Bruner says it this way, this story illustrates the gospel's truth unforgettably. Let us ourselves be loved by the Lord. Give in, be washed simply because Jesus wants to wash us and not because we think or feel we deserve to be washed. And so, as this first little mini scene or vignette draws to a close, I want to pose a question for us. How do you feel seeing the scene unfolding so far? How do you feel with the way that Jesus is portraying himself? Perhaps you might prefer that Jesus just stayed in that position of authority. Jesus, just be the king. Be the king and and give us orders to follow. And then as long as we're obedient, we can know that we're good with you, right? We can know that we're on good terms. But Jesus here shows his disciples and us that we need to allow him to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And that requires a level of humility from us. On the other hand, some of us might just want Jesus, where, where we treat Jesus as though he's just the servant and we're content to ignore him. He's at our feet. We don't have to see him until we need something. And then, you know, let's go, Jesus. But as we're about to see, as our passage continues on, that doesn't work either. Before we continue on with the scene, I just want to invite you to pause and think about what we've seen so far and invite the Holy Spirit into that place. Our second little mini scene, our second vignette picks up in verse 10. We've already read some of it. Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. See, the score playing through our scene takes, takes a bit of a minor chord now as Jesus foreshadows the treachery of one at the table of Judas that we'll see more fully at the end of our scene, but won't come to completion until the next scene in the play. Picking up at verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right for so I am. What John is doing here as we watch the the scene unfold is he's forcing us to hold something in tension, just as the disciples at the table around the feast have to hold it in tension. You see, we start to doubt for a second. We think maybe Jesus, you know, maybe the impression that we had of him coming out of act one wasn't quite right. You know, we saw him turning water into wine. We saw him walking on water. But but now that I see him kneeling at the disciples' feet, maybe he's a little more average than I thought. Maybe, after all, he is just a man. But John, through Jesus' words, forces us to hold intention that, no, he's, he's more than that. That Jesus is both the one who created the heavens and the earth, 
And he's also the one who would kneel and wash grimy feet. We can't separate the two. Verse 14, Jesus continues, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So we see that Jesus' foot washing not only teaches us the gospel, it also teaches us how to live. It gives us an example. Jesus is picking up on this as he emphasizes these titles of Lord and teacher. He's saying, whether you view me as sent from God, as divine, or simply as a rabbi, either way, if I have done these things for you, then you ought to do them for one another. You know, what excuse do they have left? What excuse do we have left as the audience taking all this in? And so think about it. Our scene has moved from lighthearted conversation around a table to shocked and sort of stunned, embarrassed silence. And now a hushed weight sinking over the characters on the stage, the disciples, as they consider the the commission that is beginning to be handed to them by Jesus. Continue on in verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. See, we get in these moments another foreshadowing of the betrayal that's ahead in the play. As Jesus quotes Psalm 41.9, a passage where David laments the betrayal of a friend who he had shared meals with. And Jesus mentions it here because he knows that for the disciples to take up this example that he is setting for them of of leading by serving, of advancing his kingdom through sacrifice, that that's going to be a hard example to follow, especially hard when they see the king of that kingdom nailed to a cross very soon. And he wants to avoid a situation where in that moment, with all the weight that they will already be wearing, be carrying in that moment, that perhaps the final straw would be for them to think, you know, Jesus declared himself to be leader of this new movement, and yet he did not know that one of his own would betray him. He wants to spare his disciples of that, that you know, perhaps final crushing weight. And he says, you need to know, friends, that I knew that this would take place. And it's to fulfill scripture. And God's still in control. And in saying these words, Jesus gives his, his audience, us, the, the example that he's setting grows a little bit because we realize that Jesus, knowing full well that Judas was betray, would, would soon betray him, has just washed the feet of that betrayer. And so we begin to recognize that the example that Jesus is setting is even, even bigger, more significant than we had just realized, that, that we're being invited, we're being um, commissioned to love and serve even our enemies, even the ones who might betray us. And so, in this, our second little mini scene, our second vignette, I would ask you how you're feeling now. 
as Jesus' words sink in for the disciples there on the stage and slowly sink in for us as well at that the weight of that commissioning. Because as you've probably heard us say at Church of the City before, any transformation that God does in you, he wants to do through you. And so if God worked a transformation in us by showing us radically sacrificial love while we were still his enemies, as scripture says, then he calls us to work that transformation in the world around us as well. So I'm going to pause now again and ask you to reflect on what we've seen happen, play out before us, the words that have been spoken and invite the spirit again into that place. think we can recognize that this is a challenge for us to embrace the commission that Jesus is giving. It's a unique challenge for each one of us in different ways. In a few minutes, we're going to hear from Adam Pietrantonio, our missionary in Japan, about the unique challenges of taking up this example set by Jesus in a Japanese culture. I think you're going to be uh, encouraged by that. But before we get there, let's turn to our third little vignette here in our final one in our scene. And I'm going to just read most of this passage for us. So I'd encourage you, you know, if you've been closing your eyes, maybe to close them again and reflect on the details that John paints for us now. Starting at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leading back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he would give something to the poor. We see the shadow fall over Jesus' face as he goes quiet again. I see... Remember back to Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Though he knows he will soon raise his friend from the dead, he's still troubled by the pain that death is bringing to the friends, to those he loves. And similarly in this moment, though he knows full well of the betrayal that Judas is about to commit, it is still a betrayal nonetheless. And we see the disciples on the stage You see the looks that they're giving each other, another sort of stunned revelation from Jesus and and not sure how to take it. And Peter wants to know who Jesus is talking about, but probably doesn't want us to have another laugh at his expense as we just did. And so he motions to this disciple, given this unique title, we, we find out that this is the disciple sitting next to Jesus and they're simply called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, commentators through the process of elimination believe this to be John, in fact, the author of this gospel. 
but he gives himself this unique title. And just quickly, you know, we might initially think that John's kind of puffing himself up. I don't think that's what John's intending to do. I think we get this title for the first time. We'll hear it again later in John's gospel. We get it for the first time here in this moment because John's presenting a contrast to the way that Judas was behaving and and what Judas was thinking in this moment to how John was feeling. That Judas would refuse to surrender his plans and preferences to Jesus and humble himself enough to accept the gracious gift that Jesus was offering. John, on the other hand, wasn't concerned with us knowing his name because he was simply captivated by the fact that God would put on flesh and begin a relationship with him. That God would love him enough to wash his feet, love him enough to go to the cross for him. He was overwhelmed, humbled by that love. And so that disciple asks Jesus, sort of on Peter's behalf, but we get the sense that it's a private conversation as John sort of leans back to Jesus, who it is that Jesus is speaking about. And surprisingly, Jesus gives an answer. He says that it'll be the one to whom he gives this morsel of bread that he's about to dip. And and indeed, he does dip it. And so in this moment, we get the sense of a, a second climax in our scene. If you think of the first one being Jesus doing this strange, almost shameful act of washing the feet of the disciples, we get sort of a second climax as Jesus dips this morsel and hands it to Judas. And again, a detail that we might miss, this act was, was actually one that a host of a feast would often do to bestow special honor to one of the guests at the feast. And it's as though Jesus, through this simple act. You know, we might think of it as the first piece of cake at a party for someone, right? It's going to be the guest of honor that gets that first piece. Jesus is extending this simple act of kindness to Judas. One final offer of love to this, the disciple that would ultimately betray him. Leslie Newbegin talks about this moment this way. He says that final act of love becomes with a terrible immediacy, the decisive moment of judgment. So that final gesture of affection precipitates the final surrender of Judas to the power of darkness. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has neither understood it nor mastered it. And so this moment becomes to us watching the scene unfold a warning. That being in a community of believers, being surrounded by disciples of Jesus does not mean being saved by Jesus. Though we have every reason to believe that Judas's feet were washed along with, all the, uh, along with all of the other disciples, Judas had not and would not allow Jesus to cleanse him from sin. So this has two implications for us now as followers of Jesus, us in the audience, if you will. First is that we ought often return to have Jesus wash our feet to those regular cleansing. I'm talking about those those practices that we as followers of Jesus do, hopefully daily, of confession, repentance, believing the gospel anew. But secondly, that we ought not be shaken by the existence of evil in the world and at times in the community of believers itself. One final quote from Newbegin for us. He says, Here is the strange paradox of the church. It is at once holy and sinful. 
The Lord himself is present in its life, yet Satan is also present. This is a summons both to realism and to faith. The disciple who's understood Jesus will not be shaken by sin and apostasy in the church. So I'd invite us to take one final pause. How are you feeling in light of Jesus' words in this moment, in that that final act of kindness that he extends towards Judas? Reflect on that. Invite the Spirit into that place. Well, it has been good to be with you, Church of the City. Now let us pray. Jesus, I pray that we would leave this morning with our hearts more in love with you at the wonder that the King of Kings uh, is a servant king who would kneel and wash our feet and who would ascend to a cross out of love for us. But would the radical transforming nature of that love, would that change the way we live? Would we be eager to show that kind of love to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to the world around us? We're overwhelmed at the way that you love us, Jesus. Teach us to love as you have loved. In your name we pray. Amen.